Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. There's an incredible sense of trepidation. Qasem Soleimani is no more. Mina Al-Oraibi, editor of The National, the English-language daily newspaper published in Abu Dhabi. Mina Al-Oraibi is also Iraqi. I spoke with her down a line from the United Arab Emirates about what the Trump administration's assassination of Qasem Soleimani means for those who will suffer most in the killing's aftermath, the Iraqi people. Since the Bush administration overthrew Saddam Hussein in 2003, Iran has used the country to fight the U.S. Many of the IEDs that caused American casualties were supplied by Iran to militias organized by Qasem Soleimani. There is no reason to think that the low-grade conflict that goes on between the United States and Iran and has been going on for decades will change its venue. It will still be Iraq. And because this podcast is about history, I began by asking Mina Al-Orebi to put the current situation into its historical context. Yes, you know, if you are an Iraqi born in 1980, you were born in the year that the Iran-Iraq war breaks out. It's hard to believe that the 40th anniversary of the war is this year. But Iran-Iraq war breaks out in 1980. So as a child, you grow up with wailing sirens, stories of people getting killed by rockets and missiles falling on their homes. Your father or uncle or someone you know has probably had to serve in the conscripted Iraqi army and suffered all sorts of horrors. In 1990, you turn 10 years old, so you're conscious, you're aware of what's going on around you. The Iran-Iraq war has just ended. You're beginning to think we're going to turn a corner. Happier days ahead as a child. And then you have the Kuwait invasion in August 1990, uh, followed very quickly by the 1992 war, 1991 war, which was devastating. 40 days of consistent shelling. Uh, Baghdad stayed without water for about 40 days. People went through all sorts of things. And then after that, the sanctions and all the misery that they brought with them. Again, with Saddam Hussein's dictatorial regime, becoming even more dictatorial during that period. You turn 23 in 2003, and suddenly Saddam's dictatorial regime is gone. You think that, okay, you've probably finished university in very difficult circumstances, but you think, oh, there's hope. There's going to be new job opportunities that Americans have come in, believe in liberal market forces, driving the economy, hoping to get a job. Things are going to change. We're going to open up. Maybe we'll even be in something like Dubai. I used to hear that so much in um, 2003 with Iraqis when I went back to Iraq where people say, hey, we could be like Dubai maybe in five years or so. And then, of course, then we're met with the horrors of sectarian conflict, the rise of militias, the, li- the rise of militants, uh, mafias, uh, complete corruption and incompetence of different uh, successive governments. And so then now you're about to turn 40. And just before that, there's hope on the streets. On October 1st, 2019, we saw this popular youthful, cultured uprising, taking the streets back, and you think, my God, I'm going to be middle-aged, and I'm going to see some happiness, some beacon of hope for Iraq. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm going to stop you right there, Mina, because one of the things, as someone who follows Iraq from London um, and, and feels a deep emotional connection to the place, one of the, the things that really bothered me throughout this autumn that we've just passed through is 
out on the streets of Iraq, you did have a new generation, you know, kids who might have been five years old when the U.S. Marines pulled down the statue of Saddam in Baghdad. And then, you know, here they are, they're, they're almost 20, and they, they've not had the benefit of, you know, that action. The, the idea that, well, we got rid of a dictator, but what was re there was no replacement for it. The Americans had no plan for a transition. The country disintegrated in, into these competing militias, and then you had the, the two or three years when ISIS was running rampant through half the country. And, you know, I, I just think it was extraordinary to see all these young people come out and risk their lives. I mean, many were shot and killed, and yet... Uh, here in, in London and in the U.S., there was very little reporting on it. It was frustrating for many Iraqis because it was almost as though their voices didn't matter or they didn't fit the stereotype. It was incredible how when there was the storming of the U.S. embassy compound, that got the world's attention. And, of course, those who were doing the storming were militiamen, but they were called protesters. So almost equating the protesters that had taken to the streets for demanding their rights, who were peaceful, who despite the fact that over 520 of their brothers and sisters being uh, killed, actually never turned violent. And yet you had the storming of the embassy compound by militiamen being called almost equally the same movement. And yes, absolutely, there is a frustration and also a sadness that there isn't this appreciation of the risks that these young people took. And also some older people were out there. I mean, the young people really did lead this protest movement. But you also have some older people who risked their lives, who went out. You had elderly women who came out and said, we're here with our sons and we want to see them through. And equally, uh, older men who were there supporting them and saying that we owe them a brighter future. And it is quite sad because you do speak to Iraqis who are in their 50s and 60s who you know, by and large, are young on a global standard, but sadly in Iraq see themselves as almost old and say, we want to make sure at least the next generation has a better shot at it than, than what we went through. But you know, what was interesting is in the middle of all that, there was a moment when Qasem Soleimani flew in. I mean, there's probably more than one moment, but I, I saw it reported once. It was reading the riot act to the government of Iraq to get its house in order and get these people off the street. So in a sense, he was acting kind of like a roving viceroy or minister plenipotentiary. And Iran was treating Iraq very much with a certain colonial high-handedness. Absolutely. And we're seeing that come into play now with demands that Iraqi politicians have to eject U.S. forces from the country, even though that's not in Iraq's interest, nor is it the Iraqis who are demanding that rather than Iran making that demand and through its proxies on the ground in Iraq. That meeting you speak about of Soleimani coming and reading the Right Act was actually a meeting of senior security um, officials and senior cabinet members who were called into a meeting they went in there thinking they're going to see Iraq's prime minister, Adel Abdel Mahdi, and in his place came Qasem Soleimani. And it's been verified as a report. It's stunning that he could waltz in like that and felt that he had the right to tell them what to do. It's one of the ironies, again, I mean, whether it's Syria, Iraq, Yemen, these files for the Iranians were only dealt with by Qasem Soleimani, a guy who walked around in military fatigues. And if any senior official spoke to Iran's foreign minister about it, he would clearly say, it, I, they're not in my portfolio. They didn't treat 
Iraq, Syria, or Yemen as independent countries that should have natural, bi uh, bilateral relationships where the foreign minister speaks to the foreign minister. That wasn't how and isn't how Iran sees these independent Arab states. It's extraordinary. I mean, I, what, what would be an analogy in, in the West? I mean, France is a nuclear state and Germany isn't. So if the French defense minister or it's equivalent to a CIA, you know, flew to Berlin to say, you know, we think you should agree to this. And if you don't... We cripple your political process, so you can't do anything until you agree. But it's not just Iran that refuses to accept there is an Iraqi state with citizens who have an Iraqi identity. Even before the war to overthrow Saddam in 2003, the Bush White House regarded Iraq as essentially a tripartite entity. Sunni, Shia, Kurd, Mina al-Araibi says that was flat wrong. This idea of Sunni... Arab Sunni, they used to call them, Shia and Kurds, became this new identity that was forced onto Iraq. And it was forced onto Iraq in three ways. The first is that's what the Americans came in with. And they put this together during the time in the lead up to the war of 2003. So you had meetings. Zalmay Khalilzad, who today is Trump's envoy for Afghanistan, was actually the envoy to the Iraqi opposition. And he would convene meetings. He convened a major meeting in London in 2002 where attendees from the Iraqi opposition actually were attending either as representatives of the Kurds, of the Sunnis, or the Shia. And many people, my father included, refused to go because they said, we do not represent, that's not what we represent. You can ask us to come in as representatives based on our experience, based on our knowledge of the country, based on what we would bring to the table. But we're not going to come here to bring in a sectarian or ethnic identity. Unfortunately, many others accepted that framing. And sadly, in that craziness of that time, 2003, 2004, they forgot about Iraqis who had their identities as Iraqis. They had secular Iraqis. You had many Kurds who actually felt Baghdad or Mosul was equally home or Kirkuk was equally home to, you know, Erbil or, or Sleimaniya, and they were ignored. Likewise, you had Christians. People forgot about them. Shabak, Yazidis, you know, it's crazy now. Everybody speaks about the Yazidis. They were totally forgotten when there was this grouping of you either had to fall under Kurd, Sunni, or Shia or otherwise were not represented. And really, a lot of the young people who are out on the streets in Baghdad from October are out on the streets to reject that framing and saying, I should wear Iraqi first. And none of these so-called religious or ethnic groupings that you have enforced upon us represent us. That's that's such an important point. I mean, what is your, your sense of the country today if you had to wager on what the impact of the assassination of Soleimani will be on the people who've been out in the streets for the last three or four months, the real demonstrators, as you said, not, not you know, militia members attacking the U.S. embassy, but real demonstrators trying to get more accountability and get just proper governance, finally, in Iraq. What do you think they will make of the assassination of Soleimani? There is an overriding sense of fear. Fear because, as you saw with the funeral procession, the procession of Soleimani, they overtook the streets. 
So the young civic activists, the people who had drawn beautiful murals on the street, the women who had taken to the street suddenly had to disappear while this procession was going through. And there was a real show of force by the militias. That's been one thing for many of these young civic protesters were scared of, that they would have to face off with the militias. So they kind of withdrew while they allow the dust to settle, but they don't plan to go away and they're still in Tahrir Square, but they're not as strong as they used to be because of the fears that now these militias are angry, they're going to want to take revenge. In addition to the fear, there's this sense of a complete political mess. We currently don't have a prime minister, we have a caretaker prime minister. Parliament has not been able to convene to impose any of the changes or, or see through any of the changes that the demonstrators have been calling for. Now everyone's calling for Parliament to convene in order to uh, agree to this uh, political gambit to push the Americans and expel American soldiers out of Iraq. So instead of us talking about reforms, the need to change the Constitution, all of that's out the window. Now it's all about what do we do with American troop presence in Iraq. So for these young civic activists, they're like, but hold on, that's not our agenda. The agenda is how do we make Iraq function better as a state? And expelling the U.S. troops is definitely not going to be about that. And so and then the third element is now you have political parties that want to prove their loyalty to Iran because they existed because of Iran's support. And so they are being pressed by Tehran to show that loyalty, to show that allegiance. And so they will, in the process, crush anyone who's seen as a traitor or seen as pro-American. And that's why it's so important for the U.S., but also for European states to show, and Arab states, largely Arab states, to show their support for Iraqis who are like, hold on, we don't want to be Iran's pawns in this. But how do they show that support? In the short term, say over the next 30 to 90 days, what do you expect to happen? It's so hard to predict what's going to happen next. There's an incredible sense of trepidation. The Iranians will want to impose their will and their might in, inside of Iraq because the ultimate enforcer of that might is gone now. Qasem Soleimani is no more. And so the Iranians need to show that while he was an important player, he wasn't the one who ultimately was able to control Iraq. Controlling Iraq is the key for Iran and its regional aspirations. And within hours of my speaking to Mina al-Oraibi, the Iraqi parliament passed a resolution demanding U.S. troops leave the country. The measure was passed unanimously by those in attendance at the session, the Shia parties beholden to Iran. Kurdish and Sunni parties did not attend. As I said at the beginning, the real battleground for this latest stage in the U.S. and Iran's decades-long conflict will be Iraq. I wonder if that was even considered when the hit on Qasem Soleimani was ordered. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks to Mina al editor of The National, for taking the time to speak with me. And if you want detailed news from the most volatile region in the world, you should read her paper. Thenational.ae is the web address. And while you're cruising around online, don't forget to visit the FRDH website, goldfarbpod.com. Lots more to listen to. And while you're there, you can make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks.